Well, I love how that last song uh, really just describes the gospel so well. And I'm so glad that we sing songs about the gospel here at Lakeside Bible Church uh, because at the end of the day, it's all about the gospel, is it not? And uh, we've been talking a lot about the gospel over the last six weeks and particularly in our summer super study called Salt of the Earth. And we've been uh, emphasizing how to impact others with the gospel. And uh, we've been seeking both to exhort and, and equip you to share the gospel with un, unbelievers in your sphere of influence. And I trust that that's been an encouragement, a challenge, a blessing to you. Um, if you haven't been able to be a part of those, I'd encourage you to go online and listen to those messages. But I was thinking that one of the dangers of focusing so much on sharing the gospel with others is, is that we could very easily forget that the gospel is not just something for unbelievers. It's something for us. It's not just non-Christians that need to hear the gospel. We as Christians need to hear the gospel. We, we not only need to be preaching the gospel to others, we also need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves on a daily basis. And uh, I'm sure many of you are aware that there's been an increasing number of books written over the past decade addressing the role that the gospel plays uh, on a daily basis in the lives of Christians. And one of my favorite authors uh, has always been Jerry Bridges, who, to my knowledge, has written more on this subject than anyone else of, of preaching the gospel to yourself. Um, I'm sure a number of you have read his books, the, the Pursuit of Holiness, Transforming Grace, Discipline of Grace. Uh, just a few years back, we read through as uh, men in our Ironman program, The Transforming Power of the Gospel, uh, the one that I most recently read that I really, really appreciated was uh, called The Bookends of the Christian Life. And uh, just a short little book. If you've never read it, I'd encourage you to read it. We have it available in our resource center. But it's just a, a helpful kind of mini summary of, uh, of much of what Bridges has written over the years regarding this concept of, of preaching the gospel to ourselves. This is what he said. I'll just quote uh, a couple of times from this little resource, the bookends of the Christian life. He said this, for many of us, our initial encounter with the gospel when we first trusted Christ occurred many years ago and is now a distant memory. That would be true of many of us. The Christian life may now be more of a duty than a joyous response to the gospel. By the way, that's, I think, what God intended the Christian life to be, was to be a joyous response to the gospel. He said, that's why we need to intentionally bathe our minds and hearts in the gospel every day. We need the gospel not only as a door into an initial saving relationship with Christ, but also to keep our daily lives from becoming a performance treadmill. And Bridges points out that after coming to know Christ, many of us as Christians have a tendency to move on from the gospel of God's grace and begin to relate to God on the basis of of performance of certain spiritual duties, reading the Bible, praying, going to church, sharing the gospel with others. And so that's how we relate to God rather than on the basis of the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And he, he presents this great concept of good days 
versus bad days. And if you've read anything from, uh, from Bridges, this will sound familiar. He talks about how on the good days, when we successfully fulfill all of our duties, all of our spiritual duties, we, we, we've read our Bible, we've prayed, we've, we've gone to church, we've shared the gospel with someone, we feel good about a relationship with God, like we've earned His favor and He's delighted with us. But on the bad days, when we skip our quiet time or we don't take time to pray or, or we don't take advantage of an opportunity to witness, we're overwhelmed with guilt and we feel like God is disappointed with us. And it's all based on our performance. He goes on to say, quote, we must re- renounce any trust in our own performance as the basis of our acceptance before God. We trust in our own performance when we believe that we've earned God's acceptance by our good works. But we also trust in our performance when we believe we've lost God's acceptance by our bad works, by our sin. We must renounce any consideration of either our bad works or our good works as the means of relating to God. We must place our reliance entirely on the perfect standing, uh, excuse me, on the perfect obedience and sin-bearing death of Christ as the sole basis of our standing before God on our best days as well as our worst days. Every day we must re-acknowledge the fact that there's nothing we can do to make ourselves either more acceptable to God or less acceptable to God. And so the key to keeping us from Falling into this good day, bad day thinking is never forgetting that our acceptance before God is not based on what we do or don't do on any given day, but what Christ has already done for us on the cross. Amen? It's a great reminder. And we need that reminder every day that we're accepted by God on the sole basis of the obedient life and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And so we need to daily ponder this amazing love of God for us in Christ that while even though we were enemies who deserved nothing but death and hell, he poured out his wrath against our sin on his beloved son Jesus and declared us righteous. We were justified. And so we need to remember what that means is that all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven at the cross and there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. And furthermore, nothing we do or don't do can change our position in Christ or make God love us any more or any less. Listen, you'll never be more loved by God than you were in eternity past when He chose you for salvation. That's when He started loving you to the ultimate degree. And, and this is the good news of the gospel. And, and Paul describes the gospel very simply in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just listen 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, to the church in Corinth, he said, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand. So the gospel isn't just what saves us, it's also what we stand in as believers. He says, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. In other words, there was nothing more important that I ever preached to you, taught you, than the gospel. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ 
on our behalf. And he calls it of first importance. In other words, the gospel is the most important truth that should define us as Christians, how we think, how we act, how we feel. And so the gospel is not only the foundation of the Christian life, but it's the fuel for the Christian life. And yet too many of us view the gospel as just the first step of the Christian life. And we leave, be, leave it behind after we're saved. And so we get saved and then we get to work. That's typically what we do. And while we acknowledge that there's nothing that we can do to earn a right standing with God, we fall into the trap of trying to maintain our standing before God by what we do. That was the problem with the church in Galatia, uh, or the churches in Galatia. They had fallen to a heresy. According to Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? How did you get saved? Was it through works or by faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, now you're, now you're trusting in your works to perfect you, to sanctify you. And I think we're, we're all guilty of that same error uh, that we know we're saved by grace through faith alone, but we think and act like we can be sanctified by our good works. And so we need to understand that the grace of God is every bit as important for becoming like Christ as it is for becoming a Christian to begin with. We, we would never have come to know Christ apart from God's grace and will never grow in Christ apart from God's grace. Bridges, in another resource he wrote, The Discipline of Grace, said that the pursuit of holiness, sanctification, the Christian life, if you will, must be motivated by an ever-increasing understanding of the grace of God. Else it can become oppressive and joyless. The pursuit of holiness, i.e. sanctification, must be anchored in the grace of God. Otherwise, it is doomed to failure. Having said all that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, and I want to look with you at a passage this morning that I think is very helpful for us as, as believers who uh, have been recently thinking about and talking about the gospel as it relates to unbelievers and uh, how, it, how, how it should impact their lives, but how should the gospel of God's grace impact our lives. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. That's, I think, the focus of this passage. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Paul was writing to his young disciple Titus, who was in charge of, uh, of the churches on the island of Crete. He was 
uh, organizing and supervising uh, the development of churches, the planning of churches there. And so he was writing to them, uh, writing to Titus, uh, how he should instruct uh, the Christians there on the island of Crete. And in order to keep those Christians from failing in their pursuit of holiness, Paul explained the role that God's grace played in transforming them and enabling them to live godly lives. He, he wanted them to know that the same grace that had saved them is the same grace that sanctifies them. In other words, grace is the key to living the kind of life that he just got done describing in verses 1 through 10. And you're, I think, familiar enough with Titus to, to know verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 uh, is this, this uh, classic list of duties of every member of the church. He uh, first addresses older men, and they're to be temperate, dignified, sensible, and so on. He, then he addresses older women who are to be reverent, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. And then he talks about the young women uh, who are to love their husbands, love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home. And then he uh, addresses the young men in verse 6 to be sensible in all sell- things, showing themselves to be an example with purity and doctrine and sound and speech. And then he addresses the, the, the bond slaves, the, the slaves, or we could apply that to employees today, uh, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything to be pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. And so his point is this, that, that, that God's grace, because he's about to say this, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. God's grace makes it possible to behave like believers and in so doing adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And so here, as we move into verses 11 through 14, what Paul is doing is he's expanding on this phrase, the doctrine of God our Savior. And he's giving here an an in-depth description of the transforming power of God's grace in our lives as believers. And and we know this is linked together because of that word for in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. That's linking what he's about to say with what he just said. In other words, this is a, a purpose clause. This is the reason why they should do these things that he's just talked about in verses 1 through 10. Or maybe better, this is the reason why they can do these things. It's not just the reason why they should do it, but it's the reason, well, it's the reason why we can do these things. God's grace provides the means by which we can live godly lives as older men, uh, older women, younger men, younger women in the church, along with being an employee. And we know this is very typical of Paul's letters here. Whenever Paul uh, started a letter, he would lay a theological foundation, followed by the practical implications of that doctrine. It's what's called the indicative imperative uh, model or motif. The indicatives are simply statements of fact about what Christ has done for us, who we are in Christ, and then he usually follows that up with imperatives. Now these are duties, these are commands. This is what we're to do in light of what Christ has done. And so this is, again, a good, a good reminder. We need to maintain a balance here between what we need to do and what Jesus has already done so that all we do for Christ will be done in response to and reliance on what Christ has done for us. And so what Paul's doing here, he's reversing that order. 
He, he started with the practical duties in verses 1 through 10, and now he's following them up by the theological realities. And this is one of the uh, verses 11 through 14 are, are one of two masterful summations of theology by Paul in this letter. The other one is in chapter 3, verses uh, 3 through uh, 7. And, and both of these passages here in chapter 2 and chapter 3 really serve as the doctrinal backbone of, of the book of Titus. Now, the focus of this first, what I like to call theological outburst, is what was very typical. Paul would be writing along and all of a sudden, blah, he'd just, like, just have this outburst of theology. And this, this, this first theological outburst is, is focused on God's grace. Notice he says in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared. We know the grace, the definition of grace is God's undeserved, unearned kindness and favor to helpless and hopeless sinners who deserve nothing but God's wrath and, and hell. And, and we understand the gospel. The good news is this, that all of us have sinned. We fall short of God's standard perfection. The penalty for our sin is death, being separated from God for eternity in hell. That's what we all deserve. But God in His love and His mercy and kindness doesn't give us what we deserve. Instead, He sent His Son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And God poured out all of His wrath on Jesus as He hung on the cross in our place, in order to deliver us from the penalty and the power of sin and death. And when we turn from our sin and we trust in Christ alone for our salvation, we're forgiven for our sin and we're given the assurance that we'll spend eternity with God in heaven. And guess what? None of this is earned or deserved. It's what? Grace. It's the grace of God. But we need to understand and realize that our salvation is just the tip of the iceberg of God's grace. There's a whole lot more going on than just rescuing us from death and hell. God's grace is much bigger and much deeper and goes much further than our salvation. It has profound effects on our lives every day as Christians. And that's really the focus of these four verses. And I want you to see here in these verses this morning, just quickly, we're going to look at, at, at five transforming effects of the grace of God. Five transforming effects of the grace of God. In other words, we're going to see five ways that God's grace transforms our lives so that we can be beautiful, powerful witnesses for Him. And that's really the theme of the book of Titus is, is godly living, how, how we can make the gospel look good in a bad world. And so we're going to see how the gospel transforms our lives. And so let's look at these five transforming effects of the grace of God. Number one, God's grace saves us. Okay, God's grace saves us. We know that. We've already talked about that, but that's where, that's where Paul begins here. He says in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing what? Salvation to all men. God's grace has appeared. To, it, it appeared suddenly on the scene. This was uh, the idea here of the sun breaking over the horizon at dawn and dispelling the darkness. It's just kind of, you're waiting, you're waiting, all of a sudden it appears and phew, it, just, it just covers the earth. This phrase, has appeared, was most often used to describe divine intervention. So what Paul is saying here is that God came to our rescue 
in the person of Jesus Christ. We were helplessly and hopelessly lost in sin, but, but in His grace, God sent His Son to save us. And He lived, and He died, and He rose again, and He returned to heaven. And so Jesus Christ personified the grace of God. In fact, I love how Zacharias, in his prophecy of the coming of Christ, when John the Baptist was born, he said this in Luke chapter 1, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise, capital S, sunrise from on high will visit us to shine on those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He likened the coming of Christ to the rising of the sun. To, to, a, to an, a world that was covered in darkness. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. In other words, we can't save ourselves, and so God had to bring salvation to us because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. In fact, look over at chapter 3 for a second at verse 4. It says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared... Same word. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Also, just turn back to 2 Timothy, just back a couple pages, chapter 1, verse 9 talking about how the power of God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So notice he says, for the grace of God, which is really for Christ, the grace of God in the person of Christ has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now, you might read that verse and go, wait a minute, time out. Does that mean that that everyone's going to be saved? It says right there that, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. This is what some would call universalism which uh, is the thinking that everyone is going to be saved, everyone is going to be forgiven, everyone is going to end up in heaven. Obviously, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Um, Paul was in no way implying that everyone will be saved here. The phrase, all men, was simply used to show the universal scope of salvation. Uh, back in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, he uses similar uh, terms here. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. He says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. The fact that not every single person will be saved proves that Paul was referring to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation regardless of their age, gender, or social status. This was to remind the Jews, right, that, hey, salvation wasn't just for you guys. God had a lot more in mind in sending Jesus. It wasn't just to save the Jews. It was to save the Gentiles as well. So that's what he meant by all men. This is uh, God's grace is universally applicable to everyone, not just certain types of people. And so the first way that the grace of God transforms us is it saves us. 
We're saved by God's grace. But let's look further now and, and say, okay, that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Let's go deeper underneath the surface and see what else the grace of God does. Secondly, God's grace schools us. Verse 12, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That word instructing there is a comprehensive term for education. It was often used to describe the training of a child by discipline. You teach a child what to do and what not to do, and then you apply the, the, the rod of reproof if they don't do it. And so what Paul's saying here is by his grace, God teaches and trains us, just like a parent does a child. You're familiar with Hebrews 12, how uh, like a good dad will discipline his children will spank his kids from time to time, and it hurts. It's not fun. It's not enjoyable. But God, in the same way, will punish us, will discipline us, will spank us if we're his children, right, to grow us, to mature us, to, to transform us uh, into his image. And so Paul's point here is that the same grace that reconciles us to our Heavenly Father and restores our relationship to our Heavenly Father also instructs us how to maintain our relationship with him by living in a way that pleases and honors him. And so it instructs us to deny ungodliness. If you've got an NIV, I like how it translates this phrase. It says it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It teaches us to say no. To, to all that disregards and dishonors God. Again, the, the tense here emphasizes an initial one-time denial when we forsake or renounce our old way of life. That, there is a, that, that when we come to Christ, we, we, we deny ourselves. Luke 9, 23. If anyone come after me, must take up his cross. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is a daily, not just a one-time act at the moment of our salvation, this is a, a lifetime of daily self-denial. And so when we're tempted to return to our old way of life, God's grace helps us learn to say what? No. Hey, come on and do this. Hey, come with us. Hey, look at this. Watch this. Go here. Say this. Think this. And we say no. How do we do that? Is that by our own willpower, our own strength? No, it's by the grace of God. And if you're mortifying the deeds of the flesh, you're, you're overcoming sinful habit patterns that you developed over years of living apart from Christ, and you're overcoming those things, you can't take any credit for that. That's the grace of God. That's an evidence of the grace of God working in your life. It's, an, it's teaching you how to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires. These are, these are passions and lusts that used to control our lives. And so this is, these are the things that we may still want to do from time to time, the, the things that we used to do before we were saved, we know are not what God wants us to do. It's the, it's the lust of the flesh, it's the lust of the eyes, it's the boastful pride of life um, that, that, that John talks about in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. And so the grace of God teaches us to say no to those worldly desires. And it doesn't just teach us to say no to ungodly, worldly desires. It also trains us, notice, to live in a right relationship with ourselves and with others and with God. He says, and to live, this is the positive side, to live sensibly, 
righteously and godly in the present age. To live sensibly means just to live a life of self-control. To live righteously means to just to do what is right, what is honest, what is fair. And to live godly means to fear and love and serve God, to honor God as our supreme devotion. Whereas we used to have no place for God in our lives, now He is first place in our lives. Notice he says that the grace of God instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In other words, these are the, the characteristics that should set us apart in a world controlled by Satan, in a generation that is bent on dishonoring God and, and drawing people away from it. It's the grace of God that teaches us how to be in the world but not of the world. To, to live as aliens and strangers who abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against our souls. It's the grace of God that helps us not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It's the grace of God that helps us be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in a crooked and perverse generation among whom we appear as lights in the world, Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. And by the way, if you haven't figured it out yet, we don't learn all that stuff at once. Anybody got all that down yet? Yeah, no, none of us will ever have that all down before we get to heaven. It takes a lifetime to learn how to walk with God. It's an ongoing process. No one ever graduates from the school of God's grace. But as a result of God's grace, we are constantly growing and learning and becoming less and less like the world and more and more like Jesus Christ. And it's all grace. And so God's grace saves us. God's grace schools us, but notice verse 13, God's grace secures us. So again, there's, there's more underneath the surface than just our salvation. What, what does God's grace also accomplish? How does it transform our lives? It secures us. Verse 13, looking for the present, or excuse me, for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. So the grace of God, he's going on, uh, brings us salvation, instructs us to deny ungodliness, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age as we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the grace of God here instructs us to live godly lives in our present ungodly world while at the same time it gives us hope and confidence that our future is secure in Christ. Because of God's grace in our lives, we live in anticipation of His imminent return. That's what the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus is referring to. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, we've learned this from the Gospel of John, that he told his disciples he was going to go and prepare a place for them, and when he was ready, he was going to come back and get them. And they would live with him forever. That's the blessed hope of every Christian. That is the appearing of the glory, or as the NIV says, his glorious appearing. This is talking about the second coming of Christ. And so by the grace of God, we long to see Christ in all of His glory so that we can be glorified too. That's an evidence of God's grace. If you're sitting here this morning and you're longing for the return of Christ to see Him as He really is so that you can be like Him, that's an evidence of the grace of God. That's God's grace working in your life. Longing to see your great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice that description of Jesus our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. 
That is one of the clearest references to the deity of Christ anywhere in the New Testament. I mean, how can you deny the fact that Jesus is God? It says right there, our great God and Savior, who? Christ Jesus. Jesus is God. And so I think the point here is that in a world full of distractions and with hearts prone to doubts, God grants us grace to wait without allowing our minds to to wander, our hearts to waver. God's grace enables us to maintain the, the two primary focuses of our life. You say, what is that? His first coming and his second coming. As Christians, living in this generation, we have the unique privilege of living between the first and second coming of Christ, the the two appearances or the two comings of Christ. He has appeared and He will appear. So we can look backward to His first appearance, to His incarnation, His crucifixion, His resurrection, by which we're justified and are being sanctified. Well, at the same time, we can look forward to His return when we'll be glorified. In other words, we can rest assured that the salvation that he began at his first coming will be completed at his second coming. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion in the day of his coming. And so the grace of God provides us with double security from both the past and the future. Notice Fourthly, the, God's grace separates us. What else, what else does the grace of God do in our lives? It doesn't just save us. No, it's a lot more than that. It, God's grace separates us. Verse 14, it says, Who gave himself, this is talking about our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So God gave himself, Christ gave himself for us. He served as our substitute. He bore our sins on the cross. He died in our place to redeem us, it says, to release us from slavery. He paid a price for us. We're all enslaved uh, to sin. And the, the price that Christ paid to free us was his own blood on the cross. And he frees us from every lawless deed, all of our rebellion, all of our disobedience to God's law. God graciously redeems us, not not only from the penalty of our sin, but also from the power of sin. And because of God's grace, check this out, sin no longer has dominion over you. You don't have to sin anymore. Did you realize that? The only reason why you sin is because you choose to sin. But you don't have to sin anymore. Why? Because the power of sin is broken. Someone said this way, that It would have been a halfway salvation if the penalty of sin had been canceled, but its dominion in our lives was left unconquered. But we know that both of those things have taken place. And and so he did this. He he redeemed us. He gave himself for us. He redeemed us from every lawless seed, and he purifies for himself a people for his own possession. He cleansed us, and he chose us and set us apart from everyone else in this world. Just like the nation of Israel, this is very similar language that he used to, to describe, the Bible used to describe the nation of Israel, this, this chosen people, this special group, this treasured possession. The point is we are no longer our own. 
We, we, are no, we no longer belong to Satan. We no longer belong to the world. We belong to God. Why? Because we have been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 16, 6.19, you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. One commentator said this, the, he said, a holy people was God's purpose in paying such a fearful price. Therefore, knowing what all has, he has done and why he has done it, a Christian who truly loves Christ and looks forward to his return will pay any price to bring his life into conformity with his beloved Lord's will, lest he disappoint him at his return. And so we know this is the goal of God's grace, was to, to call out a special group of people that would be his very own. And so God's grace separates us. And then finally, notice God's grace stimulates us. Stimulates us. What is the purpose of these, these people that have been redeemed, that have been set apart for God's own possession? They are to be what? Verse 14, zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good deeds. In other words, God's grace makes us eager to do what is good. And by the grace of God, we're enthusiastic about performing acts of kindness and love and service in His name and for His glory. Listen, if you have a desire to serve and to give and to, to be kind and to, to minister to others, that's an evidence of the grace of God. That's God's grace at work in your life, stimulating you to love and good deeds. And so by the grace of God, we should all have an all-consuming passion and zeal to work hard to promote and further the cause of Christ in this world. Now, this phrase, I think, is troublesome for some, zealous for good deeds, because you're like, wait, time out. I thought that the Christian life, there was nothing about good deeds in the Christian life. I mean, what, what, there's a lot of confusion about the role that good deeds or good works play in the Christian life, right? We talk about, well, you're not going to be saved by your good deeds, there's a world full of people thinking, well, hopefully, you know, hopefully my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. When I get to heaven, it's going to be like a scale, right? And I'm hoping that my good deeds are going to outweigh my bad deeds. And so whenever we get to these passages about zealous for good deeds, like, whoa, whoa, time out. I don't want to get confused here. I thought, thought salvation was by grace through faith alone, apart from good deeds, apart from good works. So, so what is the role that good works play in the Christian life? Well, I think we could simply say this, that our good works contribute nothing to our salvation. We trust solely in Christ's work that he's accomplished for us on the cross. However, good works are the inevitable outcome of our trust in Christ's work. They're the visible manifestation of true saving faith. In fact, look at chapter 3 here, verse 8, here in Titus. Paul says this, this is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Notice the good deeds come after the belief. It's not like faith plus works equals salvation. No, faith equals salvation plus good works. Paul confronted the false teachers in Titus 1. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. In other words, they claim to be Christians, but, but if you look at their life, you know they're not. I think the clearest 
passage in, in the New Testament about the relationship between faith and works is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We know this by heart, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then the next verse says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before us so that we would walk in them. In other words, we're not saved we're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. It's all in the preposition, right? We're not saved by works, but we're saved for works. And so all that to say, the theme, again, I mentioned this earlier, the theme of this book, the book of Titus, we just kind of dove into it head first without setting too, too much of the context here, but the, the overarching theme of this letter to Titus was Paul was saying, listen, I want to I instruct you here. I want to give you some practical instruction, Titus. As you're organizing and you're supervising these churches, they need to be made up of people who've been genuinely saved by the grace of God that results in godly lives marked by good deeds that makes their lives a beautiful and powerful reflection of the gospel in an ungodly world. And again, how, how do you make the gospel look good in a bad world? It, well, it's living, like Paul describes here in verses 1 through 10, adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior in every respect. Well, how do we do that? Well, it's by the grace of God. It's by the grace of God. Probably the most famous mutiny in the world, world history, is that of the British ship HMS Bounty. You've all heard of the mutiny on the bounty, right? Uh, it's a story that's been told and retold in numerous books and movies, and yet a few of those books and movies highlight the whole story. Let me tell you the story of the mutiny on the bounty, because I think it's beautifully illustrates what we've been looking at from Titus chapter 2 this morning. The story goes like this. In the late 1700s, Captain Bly had been commissioned by the British government to sail to the Pacific Islands to collect a certain kind of plant to transplant in the West Indies to provide food for slaves. In 1787, Captain Bly had left Tahiti to travel back to England, but one morning he woke up to find himself facing a mutiny. Not only was the crew fed up with his harsh treatment, they had little to look forward to back in England, and they were bewitched with the leisure and licentiousness of island life. And so they sent Bly and his officers adrift in a small boat, and under the leadership of Fletcher Christian, sailed the bounty back to Tahiti. There they persuaded some of the women to come with them and set sail again. They eventually landed on the uninhabited island of Pitcairn. After taking everything they could find, could from the ship, they set it on fire and sunk it so they, so they could not be found. Then they let their passions run wild. They were free to do whatever they wanted with no law to guide them. It didn't take them long to turn their island paradise into a living hell of sexual abuse, drunkenness, and murder. They became like animals in their behavior and were literally destroying themselves. The story goes on, fearing for their lives, the women and children fled to another part of the island and built a fort for protection. Eventually, there were just two of the mutineers left. With their small society in the brink of collapse, God graciously intervened. One of the men discovered the old Bible from the bounty, but he was illiterate. So the other man taught him to read using the Bible. 
They started in Genesis, and as they read, they learned that God is holy and that they were sinners who had offended him. They were gripped with sorrow, and their lives began to change. One of the men died, but the other continued to read through God's word. When he got to the New Testament and read about Jesus Christ, he got saved. From that moment on, everything on Pitcairn Island changed. He began to read the scriptures to the women and children. He taught everyone about the Christian faith and instituted a daily prayer time, grace before meals, and Sunday worship. In 1808, less than 20 years after the original mutiny, an American ship from Boston came across Pitcairn Island. The captain and crew were shocked to find that the island was inhabited by a thriving Christian community. Their love and hospitality were unlike anything they'd ever experienced. When he got back to Boston, the captain reported that in all his travels, he had never met such good, gracious, godly people. He wrote, all they seemed to care about is helping each other. What happened on that island is an incredible testimony of the transforming power of God's grace. That was the grace of God. And that should give us hope that no matter how bad your life was or still is, that the grace of God can transform you as well. Amen? And you could say, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder this morning from the Apostle Paul of the, the grace of God that has appeared, your grace that has appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ and, and that it has so, uh, so, such a powerful impact in our lives that, 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 that is far more than just our initial salvation, but it continues into our lives uh, as Christians in sanctifying us and, and schooling us and securing us and separating us and, and even just stimulating us to love and good deeds. And Lord, we, we can say this morning, we know that, that we are who we are simply and only because of your grace. Lord, I pray that we'd never get over the, the, the amazing grace that you have shown to each of us in Christ and that every day, Lord, we'd be, we'd be awakened by you with your grace on our minds and our hearts. Uh, just, just, just relishing, Lord, your goodness and your grace and your mercy. And that our lives would simply uh, be a joyous response to how gracious you've been to us. And Lord, that we would be as gracious to others and with others as you have been to us and with us. Lord, that this church would have a reputation, Lord, of, of, of a church that's, that's committed to the truth, but it's a gracious church, Lord, that, that we are like Christ, filled with, with grace and truth. And so, Lord, may we learn to be gracious with one another, and may we, le- may, may we learn to be gracious with, with those outside of our church, Lord, and uh, Lord, that our lives would be a beautiful, powerful reflection of your grace towards all men, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.